The modern story of homelessness tends to go a little something like this. In the 80s, Ronald Reagan shut down a slew of mental health services, which tossed a bunch of people out onto the street. Fast forward years later, and we have what is often referred to as an epidemic of street homelessness in many cities in America. And while all of that is certainly true, it's only a small portion of the full story. The reality is that the majority of people who are experiencing homelessness are currently defined out of accessing aid, meaning that the Department of Housing and Urban Development doesn't even consider them homeless. The shelter is the last resort. The street is the last resort. And so if we have built a system that serves people only at the last resort, then who are we missing? You know, we're missing a whole lot of people who are living very vulnerably and come in and out of these systems. And in a lot of ways, the ways that we've defined uh, who's eligible for services is dependent on literally sleeping on the street last night or literally sleeping in a shelter last night. We're not dealing with this issue in its totality. And because of that, we're obscuring an exponentially larger looming crisis. From Rivet and Streetwise, I'm Jesse Batend, and this is where I stay. I use an iceberg analogy. Um, the street homelessness is the tip of the iceberg that we can see. But the people who are doubled up and invisibly homeless are the ones beneath the surface. Does that feel like a good analogy to you? Yes. The first voice you heard belongs to Suzanne Haney. She's Streetwise Magazine's senior editor, and she's been covering homelessness a lot longer than I have. The person agreeing with her was Erin Ryan. She's the senior vice president of operations at the Knight Ministry, an organization that works with many of Chicago's most vulnerable homeless citizens. Typically, I don't, I don't know what the science is behind this, but I think you typically see 10% right of the iceberg, and the rest is underneath the surface. And I think, um, I think that's a, that's a, that's an apt analogy um, for the problem of homelessness. We wanted to have a conversation about the modern story of homelessness, specifically the parts that tend to get left out. So we invited Aaron and a number of other guests to join us for a live panel. It was an amazing, illuminating conversation, and I wanted to bring it to you here on the podcast. To help me moderate, I was joined by Streetwise editor Suzanne Haney, and joining Aaron on the panel were three others, Dr. Molly Brown, Assistant Professor of Clinical Community Psychology and Director of the Homelessness Advocacy Research and Collaboration Lab at DePaul University. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And two Streetwise magazine vendors, Lee and Paula, who are currently experiencing homelessness. We started out by inviting Lee and Paula to share a little bit about their experiences, both as homeless Chicagoans and Streetwise vendors. How you doing? It's not all that complicated. You know, I wind up being homeless because um, family situations and issues that was going on in the household that I couldn't take no more. So I just ventured out and I was out there on the street trying to figure it out which way to go, what to do. I never really just lived on the street, riding the trains all night long. And there's man dealing with the different people. And I'm looking at this from a different point of view. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of a sad situation. I see all these people on the train and um, I wind up man, having an individual tell me about Streetwise while I was out there. And I went to one of their orientations. But when I got in there, it didn't really look like a business like I thought it is now, like I know it to be now. 
I'm kind of like, okay, somebody playing games around here, and you know, <laughs> I'm not going to get nobody no money for no magazines and things of this nature because I don't have none, and I don't know what they think they playing, who they playing with. So I've been in shelters, different shelters, and you know, you're dealing with issues in the shelters. You're seeing people with mental illnesses coming in and they creating chaos and dealing with big bugs, roaches. You know, there's some places that's not clean and. I wind up being on the north side of somebody told me about Streetwise again. I see them out there selling magazines and everything, but I'm like, okay, you know, some of the things that I see them doing, I'm like, no, I can't do that. You know, my pride don't allow me to do certain things. And so I really got to that point up north, too. I'm like, you know what? I'm broke. I really need some money. Somebody told me about a job I can go to, but I'm going to get to that job because I ain't got no money in my pocket. And they're like, man, why don't you just go up to Streetwise, man? You know, they'll help you out. And I'm like, oh. Let me go try them again. Let me go see, you know, what they're about again. When I first walked in there, I'm kind of like, okay, somebody trying to scam me. But this time, it's like, okay, they got some professionalism about them. I'm listening to people talk, and a couple of the vendors come in there, and they're putting out all this money in their pocket and talk to the guy at the time. And he convinced me to go to the orientation. I went there. They gave me a place. And I'm like, okay, this is not really working out the way I thought it was because people laughing at me, walking past me, act like they don't see me and none of that. They say, stick with it, Lee. Stick with it. Sooner or later, it's going to happen for you. Just stick with it. We're doing this journey. I'm telling you, it's something that you really, a person never experienced it, they wouldn't want to experience it. You know, a lot of people do lose their mind. A lot of things come up out of it. I'll be the first one to tell you, ride the train. I just can't sleep like that on the train. I had to get real drunk to do that. I had to get actually mm. drunk just to ride the train at night. Because mm. some of the things I've seen, I want to lay down, but my mind won't let me lay down sober on this train. You know, it, I just can't do that. Um, there were some guys on there, and they're like, man, you want some? I'm, I'm, yeah, give me some. You know, they on the train drinking, and as we finish the bottle, we all eventually wind up falling asleep right there. But that's just some of the things I experienced with it. Homelessness is no joke. It's a serious thing. What, what's your current living situation right now? Well, right now, you know, um, I go out and sell magazines, and I can get a hotel for $45 a night. You got to have this $45 every night just to be in this hotel. In Lee's case, he actually has access to a house located in a Chicago neighborhood called West Englewood. For a while, he was crashing there, even offering rooms to other streetwise vendors. But because of the condition of the house, the city won't let him live there without costly renovations. My sister was staying over in West Englewood. Um, if you read the magazines, that's one of the areas that's coming up on the redevelopment right now in the city. And... I asked my older brother to ask her, can I come over and stay a couple of nights with her? And she was like, yeah, he can do that. But when I walked in the house, I'm kind of like, first of all, the city would not let nobody rent out a house like this. Okay. You got nothing but cold water. The kitchen floor is tore up. Okay. Now you got the other things like heat, you know, you got lights, but the city would not allow a person to rent a house out like this. You know, mm -hmm. you got a couple of windows that's out. She called the city. And it's like, you got to move. This is, you know, you can't stay here. And I went back to the shelter and somebody stole the suit from me. And I'm like, what well, I'm doing in this shelter? There's a big old house over in Inglewood. I can, you know, she gave me the keys. I just put my hand back in the mailbox and grabbed the keys. But right now, I'm up on North Avenue. I'm in a hotel. Every day I walk outside this hotel, I see homeless people. I see people out there sleeping on the benches, you know, sleeping on the sidewalk. You know, when I go to my location, I see that. But I'm in this hotel. After right Paula's now. mom passed away, she left the house to Paula and her brother. But ultimately, the two of them ended up losing the house. Suzanne points to lack of banks and other institutions in Paula's neighborhood that could have given her financial guidance. 
basically we end up riding the trains, staying in shelters. My oldest son got into it with some kids. We got put out the shelter. We were just back and forth, back and forth, friends' house, everybody's house. Then my kids got taken from me through DCNF. I caught a case, which I'm um, basically trying to expunge my case. And it was a um, failure to feed my children. And I couldn't feed them nothing but restaurant food. We had no place to stay, so I couldn't cook a decent meal at all. So I was basically going to the restaurant. And it was basically hurting me because when we was in the shelter, I'm seeing myself through other people. And it was hurting me. My kids was getting into, like I say, my oldest son was getting into fights. He wouldn't stay in school unless I was there. It was just getting horrible for me. I tried staying with my dad. My dad was supporting me for a minute. I guess because of my brother, my oldest brother, he didn't want to support me anymore. Me and my brother got into a real bad fight. I got threw out the house again with my kids. Mm. And it just hurt me because I felt like I didn't have anyone, anyone at all. My mother had been there for like 10 or 15 years. So I didn't have nobody but my dad. So uh, my brother works here at Streetwise and they were steadily telling me about Streetwise. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. So my brother then was like, come up to Streetwise. Here. You can get some food. You can get to know everybody. I was scared because of my situation. I didn't want to bring the kids. I didn't know if I could bring the kids. So I was like, nah, I'm good. Which basically to the police station, wanted to get the kids up. But once again, they was my focus, my main goal. So I was like, okay, let me go ahead and try it. <laughs> I tried it. At first, when I first did it, I was kind of scared. He, he put the apron around me. <laughs> and I was scared. People walking past. I'm standing there with the magazine. I'm like, could y'all buy the magazine? It's only $2. They looking like, huh? Walking fast. I was about to cry. And this one lady was like, what you say? She walked back. She said, what you say? I said, could you buy the magazine, please? She said, sure. She bought the magazine. I called her. I said, I got $2. Oh, my God. What do I do with $2? <laughs> like, it's yours. I'm like, what do I do with it? It's like, put it in your apron. I'm like, huh? And it was funny because I never actually was able to say I had money because I was in a situation with a guy. He beat me. He just took everything I had, my money, my food stamps, and everything. So to see $2 was like, oh my God, what do I do with it? Wow. Wow. The goal of our first eight episodes was to explore in depth the reality faced by those that don't count as homeless, but also don't have a home. The goal of this conversation was to explain why that definition of homelessness, one that ignores so many people experiencing it, even exists, and how this situation is impacted by the fact that we're only telling part of the story. I wanted to start with you, Aaron. 
when we talk about the story of homelessness, what do we tend to focus on and, and what parts are sometimes obscured by the way that we tell it? I think we talk a lot about homelessness in the context of mental illness, substance abuse, and what's really obviously visibly homeless. So in recent years, that's been encampments that have seemed to have sprung up in every American city, but are even more prevalent than they ever have been in my career. Um, so our systems are designed to serve those folks, right? But if you reflect on both Lee and Paula's stories, um, you know, it's very typical that this situation is super fluid, right? Um, and the shelter is the last resort. The street is the last resort. And so if we have built a system that serves people only at the last resort, then who are we missing? You know, mm -hmm. we're missing a whole lot of people who are living very vulnerably and come in and out of these systems. And in a lot of ways, the ways that we've defined uh, who's eligible for services is dependent on literally sleeping on the street last night or mm -hmm. literally sleeping mm -hmm. in a shelter last night. Mm -hmm. And so that status of being literally homeless um, is important. And so it's very hard to connect, right, to the right services at the right time. And it's even harder to connect all those services um, to uh create a solution that works for you as an individual. Um, and I think that's part of the problem is that the system is designed a certain way. And what we've just seen from these two stories is that every individual uh, is different and their needs are different and the kinds of services they need at different points of the journey are different. And the system is just not that flexible. Uh, so that's, yeah. yeah. Um, and you've lived it. So <laughs> it's, um, it's really important to, for us to understand that from your individual perspectives, I think, as we think about how to um, respond. Erin, I use an iceberg analogy to describe street homelessness versus doubled up. Um, the street homelessness is the tip of the iceberg that we can see, but the people mm -hmm. who are doubled up and invisibly homeless are the ones beneath the surface. Does that feel like a good analogy to you? Yes. Um, it typically, I don't, I don't know what the science is behind this, but I think you typically see 10%, right, of the iceberg and the rest is underneath the surface. And I think, um, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an apt analogy um, for the problem of homelessness. And uh, at, at the Night Ministry, we uh, provide shelter for young people. Um, and just with young people alone, ages 14 to 24, couch surfing, living doubled up with other people is extremely common. Um, probably three quarters of the young people that we see have definitely been bouncing around, right, before they reach the shelter. And I, I don't think that's unique to youth necessarily. I think that's often how folks start their journey uh, back to stability and housing. Um, and again, the shelter is sort of the last resort. So by the time somebody shows up at a shelter, oftentimes they've already been experiencing this instability for quite a long time. One thing that uh, I like about the the image of, of the iceberg and maybe why it's helpful is, is, like you said, so much of it is obscured. And part of the problem here is lack of data. So as a researcher, Dr. Brown, first of all, let's just start at the beginning. Like, why is there even more than one definition of homelessness to begin with? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that the, the context for this whole conversation has to do with us kind of working or operating within a scarcity framework. There simply are not enough resources to go around to serve mm. everybody who has a need for housing or other services associated with homelessness. So different organizations or different federal agencies in particular have different definitions uh, because they have different types of resources available and they serve different purposes for addressing homelessness. Some definitions are broader and some are narrower. But when it comes to this issue of being doubled up, um, the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development does, in fact, have a subset of individuals who are doubled up who would qualify for homelessness services if they are doubled up and imminently about to lose their doubled up housing situation or about mm -hmm. to lose that roof, roof over their head. But that certainly doesn't account for the, the majority of people who are living in double, doubled up or overcrowded situations. Um, but there's this also then leads to this disconnect between how we define homelessness and how homelessness is measured and reported. Because going back to kind of the tip of the iceberg analogy, we tend to um, only count or report statistics on those who are experiencing homelessness in shelters and um, on the streets. Erin, in some cases, people are living with friends or family, which sounds pretty benign. So why do homeless service providers consider it precarious? Um, so yes, uh, you know, friends, family, church members, we've seen teachers taking in students who are experiencing housing instability of some kind. It's precarious because, you know, you don't have a lot of rights. You don't have a lot of legal rights if you're sleeping on someone's couch um, and they can ask you to leave at any time. Um, so if there's additional stress on the family, if somebody, you know, loses a job or somebody comes home um, from prison and needs a place to stay, it gets more overcrowded and somebody else needs that, that couch. You know, if you have children, it's complicated. It's never just one thing. Um, it's usually kind of layers of things, right? Um, that build up to the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. But um, it's precarious because you don't have many rights. It's also precarious because the situations very easily turn into exploitative situations um, where people's labor is exploited. There's sex trafficking and la labor trafficking, particularly um, among younger people and women. Um, it, domestic violence um, is very intersected with homelessness. And so I, I just think that, you know, there's a lot of things that factor into why. Mm -hmm. I do think that, um you know, between Dr. Brown's comment about this whole conversation operating within a scarcity framework and um, Paula, what you said about, you know, actually having two physical dollars in your hands. Dr. Brown mentioned that, that a person who's doubled up might be defined as homeless if they were going to be imminently kicked out. And what I've found from these kinds of stories is that you don't really get a lot of forewarning that so much of the time it's just sudden and then you're screwed. Does that mm -hmm. resonate with you? Yeah. I had that yeah. experience. I had that experience with one of the vendors. Um, you know, I told you about the house over in um, West Inglewood and the whole thing behind it when I really got in there and kind of got comfortable and used to, you know, doing it, as they would say, squatting man, utilizing these five rooms. I can't sleep in all five. You know, I can try to help somebody that want to help themselves. But um, as me and Suzanne had to talk about one time, be careful about who, who you let in. But this one particular vendor invited me into his house. And like 
2 o'clock in the morning, he wakes me up, cusses me out, and say, get out. Hmm. So now I'm in the morning. There's no buses running. There's no trains running now. You know, I got to make my way to the red line just to get back on the train. But when I was there, it's like, man, y'all, once you go to the store and get me a pop, once you cook something to eat, once you do this, and I'm happy, you know, start feeling like I'm somebody butler now. You know, as opposed to <laughs> you saying you want to help. You know, you don't want to help. I think you basically want a butler. You know, mm. when you guys want me to be that butler. And then, wow. you know, you say you ain't got to pay no rent. But if I made more money than him that day, <laughs> now, like, uh, don't you want to do this until I get up on my feet? And now the whole situation, I'm flipped. You're going to put me out again? And he actually did it to me twice. So it's like, man, a third time when he said, man, I'm like, that's okay. I'd rather ride the trains now. I take my chances with the pickpockets and the knuckleheads on the train at night. You know, all I got to do, you know, so that's a big old factor. But what you're saying makes so much sense, uh, Lee, because, I mean, you're, you're, what you're pointing out there is like how you're, you, in your case, you're literally moving back and forth between having a place to stay and being on the street. It's, it's not like one fluid situation, depending on that's what true. people are counting. You might be living on the street or you might have a place to stay. Maybe you're bouncing between multiple locations. That's, that's true. But in the same token, when you bouncing around with kids and you getting put out, you getting called dumb, stupid, then you get into a relationship with a man that's just basically got his own personal issues. He's jumping on you, fighting you, fighting you in front of your children mm -hmm. and different things. You know, I'd have been hitting my head with kids. I'd have been basically told oh I'm doing stuff with my family. And where being homeless for a female with children is a is a struggle. It's a struggle. It's hard. It's hard. So that young lady Angelica, I kind of know what she was going through. I understand her pain a lot. You know, only thing that did not happen to me, not prostituting. I was not drinking, drugging, or none of that. You know, but I feel all that young lady's pain because I'd have been jumped on. I'd have been basically told I was sleeping with my kids, sleeping with my dad, sleeping with people that was trying to help me. I, I had nothing, nothing. My last uh, place of residence, the guy that I'm talking about that basically jumped on me. That's the reason for me getting with Lee, my brother and another vendor. That works here because I felt like at the end of the day, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I have nobody. You know, the guy literally like <laughs> I was standing on the street. It wasn't safe for me to be there. Yeah. So was I going to turn? I had to make that change. And Streetwise helped me make that change. Wow. Well. That is so hard. I'm so sorry. I'm so glad you had the other guys for support. Um, yeah. Molly, you know, we, we've said that the tip of the iceberg is about 5,390 people. That's what the point in time count said for last year. Now, the Coalition for the Homeless says the count in Chicago is much higher. And they say that the doubled up is actually 58,000. But do we even know? the size of the problem? 
Gosh, you know, yeah, I mean, it really comes back to this idea of how we define homelessness, because that will determine who gets counted and, and who doesn't. And the Chicago Coalition of the Homeless has a, a much broader, you know, definition of, of homelessness that, that they apply that yields these larger numbers. But understanding the problem also depends on how kind of what the metric is. Are we interested in knowing how many people on one single night are experiencing homelessness? Are we more interested in knowing, you know, over the course of a year, how many people experience homelessness? And I think like we're hearing from Lee and Paula's stories and as Aaron described it as being very fluid, you know, that one night Lee and Paula could be missed in that count. Um, so in some ways having a longer time frame of measurement um, would yield larger numbers, but might tell a more complete story. Um, but there are also challenges with how we go about actually, you know, counting people who are experiencing homelessness and what that process and methodology looks like. So as we, you know, work toward developing solutions, I just really think it's important for whatever method ends up getting landed on is, is one that is ethical and doesn't cause harm to the people who uh, we're trying to help and people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, so yeah, I think we have a long way to go in this area and um, for now we're stuck with some conflicting data. <laughs> I wanna piggyback on that a little bit and say yeah. that I think there's some huge missed opportunities that we have because we know that the homeless service system is not the only system that's responding to the problem of homelessness, right? So mm -hmm. we have hospitals, we have um, juvenile detention, jails, prisons, um, we have the behavioral health system, um, we have the child welfare system, right? And so um, all of those systems are serving folks who are experiencing homelessness and housing instability, and very few of those systems are gathering that data right, are asking the question, when you leave here, do you have a place to go? Um, and that's a huge missed opportunity to serve sort of at those intersections. And I think we're starting to get better at that. And there's some interesting pilot projects happening that are data matching between these large data systems. Um, but, you know, they're pilot projects. So um, hopefully in the coming years, we'll see some learnings and some best practices emerge from uh, sharing information across systems, which I think is is just critical. Yeah, um, piggyback right yeah. off the two young ladies. Um, I don't know if any of you all heard of 10 South Kansas, but they was like, I stayed there. They have food, water, and like, you know, even for the children, it's, it's basically, you can't live there. You have to get up and leave. Where do you go? Like Lee was saying, where do you go? You have nowhere to go. If you're homeless, where do you go? Where do you go and take showers? You know, so, I mean, basically, we can go through all that, but it's still, where do we go to get the basic necessities that we need? And, um, what and I'm really, I'm really kind of stuck on that. What you're talking about, 10 South Kedzie is where- It's the city, it's the city services, city mm -hmm. center. Yeah. I'm just gonna repeat something that you said earlier, Aaron, and, and I'm correct in understanding that for someone who is doubled up, they wouldn't be able to access most housing services unless they came to be living on the street. Is that correct? Well, so there's a technicality here because um, we have a, a system in Chicago whereby you can be assessed 
for housing um, and services. And you can access that assessment in a lot of different places, a drop-in center, a shelter, an outreach team might engage with you. Um, and technically, I mean, if you say like, I'm living with somebody right now, you can still be assessed for housing and put on the list. So there's not a prohibition against that. It's just that we don't have a real coordinated effort to conduct outreach to folks who are living doubled up to uh, ensure that we're finding and engaging those folks. That's, that's part of the problem. Um, and the other part, as we've kind of already alluded to, is that this, the, the resources are really geared towards people who are most vulnerable. Um, there's literally an, a, an index, a measurement of vulnerability right. that right. is used in that assessment. And that, that tool was designed to prioritize resources for people who are most at risk of dying on the street, um, quite frankly. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's um, measuring length of homelessness, uh, your housing situation, where you're literally sleeping, and then um, health indicators. And so uh, the, the resources are really um, prioritized for um, that tip of the iceberg, right? <laughs> Dr. Brown, Aaron mentioned the vulnerability index and can you kind of give us a sense of maybe some of the unintended consequences of the way that these systems work? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, back to the, the scarcity framework issue, um, we're left now having to decide who will get access to these scarce housing resources. Even the tip of the iceberg group, there aren't enough services for, for those individuals. So we have to create relatively arbitrary metrics for how we decide who gets access to those services. And, you know, Aaron spoke to the idea of vulnerability as being the, the current kind of uh, favored approach, but the tools, the assessment measures that have been designed to measure vulnerability um, have not undergone rigorous scientific scrutiny for their validity or for their effectiveness in mm. kind of triaging housing to people who need it the most. So um, these systems oftentimes roll out before we even have best practices in place. And one of the most critical um, unintended consequences is that one of the most popular vulnerability indexes that's used in the United States has been found both in research studies and also in practice to essentially give higher housing priority to white individuals over black individuals. And that's a result of these tools um, having biases within them in the way that we measure and conceptualize vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And also in the assessment process, there is likely some bias that occurs in which people of color and black individuals might feel less comfortable disclosing really personal information about mm -hmm. themselves. And so this is a great just illustration of how our homeless service systems, like so many other systems in our society are rooted in white supremacy. And that uh, until we repair this problem, our service systems are going to perpetuate the racial disparities that already exist um, in such important ways in the homeless population. Well, you know, I agree with that because in de dealing with up north, you know, um, and the reason why a lot of people in Chicago go up north because around the Broadway or in uptown area, they got a lot of resources. But yet in the same token, they ask you questions. And sometimes you don't feel comfortable a answering them questions, you know, when mm. I think one of the biggest things is, is why you see a lot of, you know, especially black single men on the street is the fact that um, they come out of the penitentiary. 
they've been in the penitentiary maybe 10, 20 years ago, you're still going to get judged by what they did 10, 20, or 30 years ago. Even though they've been out there, it might have been the only time that they've been in a penitentiary. Well, yet, you know, that's a factor right there, going to jail. You know, and basically you're shutting them up out of housing. So if you don't have nowhere to go, and we we can be talking about some real hardcore criminals right now that they living out on the street. And you, and, right. you know, right, right. but that's a big factor. One time I was um going through a process and we had did the criminal background check. And I go back in and I talk to the man. And you know, the man told me you stole a bottle of wine when you was 12 years old. I'm like, wait a minute, man. I work at the airport. Homeland Security ain't go that far back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you talking about something I did now, 12 years old. And I'm like, wow, man, that's kind of crazy. Wow. It's so interesting how this stuff kind of plays out because in Angelica's case, when she first needed a place to stay, she was kind of ditched by a guy who she was living with. Uh, he was actually the father of her soon to be child one day he disappears and uh, they had made plans to leave so she couldn't keep her apartment. So the social worker that she ended up going to, you know, gave her the advice to basically fake a drug addiction because we can get you a bed for the night at this rehab clinic that's an inpatient place. Like that's actually the quickest way to get you a bed tonight. And that really shocked me. I think you can hear in the podcast, I'm like, what, what, why was that the thing? Um, and that's from the outside looking in, it just seems like, wait, no, that can't be the most direct source of aid. And, and there was someone um, from Streetwise's team who kind of was like, hey, that, that part of the podcast kind of offended me because you know, I, I might make that suggestion for the right person at the right time. There really are in some cases an immediate lack of options. And um, that kind of brings us to the, the second half of our conversation. Dr. Brown, there's been a shift where maybe the, the predominant story for the causes of homelessness were often mental illness. There's been a, a more of an acknowledgement, it seems, that uh, economic situations are causing people to enter homelessness, excuse me. Um, what, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the way we kind of approached it was um, making that that housing conditional on behavior. So if you had a mental illness or a drug addiction, you needed to kind of fix that. We need to repair that first, and then we could get you into housing in order for you to maintain it. But there's been more of a shift to acknowledging that stable housing needs to be the priority. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like and, and why? Yeah. Um, so, so largely the, the federal government now um, promotes a type of housing referred to as, as housing first. And um, this is a, an approach to housing where it basically eliminates barriers for people to gain access to permanent housing situations. People don't have to adhere to any particular treatment program. For individuals who use drugs and alcohol, they don't have to maintain abstinence from drugs and alcohol. Um, and, and basically, uh, the reason for this policy shift toward housing first is that research studies have found that they produce better housing outcomes for individuals. And in some cases, they've actually been found to be cost effective. Um, so I think largely the, the decision was based on research, but I would like to think based on what you your introduction to this question, Jesse, is that there is some sort of societal ethical uh -huh. element to how this shift happened in 
recognition that access to safe, affordable, and accessible housing is in fact a human right and should not be based upon individuals' choices for how they want to manage their health conditions, and that housing interventions really need to accommodate to those um, health conditions and disabilities that individuals might have, um, rather than individuals adapting to the requirements of you know, housing interventions um, themselves. So my, my hope is there's a little bit of a, an acknowledgement of kind of those, the ethical components, and, but, but I think largely driven by research. Sure, sure. But you know, not by me being out there, not going to talk to him, being around a lot of people that's homeless. And that's kind of like, you know, real tricky because some people do need to be helped or managed along with certain when it comes to drug addiction, when it comes to alcohol, you know, them type of things, people do need to be have that, um, they need to have certain things in, play, in place for them. Because that, in the long run, they're going to wind up back on the street. If they out there, you know, um, using heroin and cocaine, nine times out of ten, that addiction going to take over their rent. I know a female right now today, all she had to pay was $10 a month. $10 a month, and she had her housing. She choose to smoke crack cocaine over the pan at $10. So that can become a problem when you just say, man, let them in. And then some of them people actually stop fires. They be the cause of the building. They're not really telling you, but it's because somebody was doing something wrong, trying to got high, got a little bit scared, and it happened in Uptown. The man got high. He thought somebody was knocking on the door. He threw a lit pipe up under his bed, and whoosh, the whole building went up. So certain things need to be wow. put in place for certain individuals. Yeah, I, can, can I respond to Lee just, just briefly? Course, yeah, I, I completely agree. And a, and a critical element of the housing first model is that lots of services are provided and available to people and they get to choose, you know, what they what they want for their support to, to kind of address the, those very issues that you're describing. Um, I'm going to skip on Aaron and Molly, you can jump in on this if you like. What has been the impact of COVID? Have we seen it enlarge the doubled up homeless population or even the homeless population on the street? Mm. Um, I think the short answer is yes. Um, I think that shelter capacity has been reduced due to COVID because of social distancing requirements and sanitation requirements um, to keep people safe. Um, and uh, as a result, we've seen increases uh, like the first place we saw it, even over the summer, was on the trains. Uh, many more people riding the trains, uh, using the train system as a shelter system, kind of um, ad hoc. Um, and, and because of that, actually, the city has invested resources in doing more outreach on the trains um, late at night for folks. Um, I think um, we've also seen a spike in domestic violence um, situations and people needing services or it being more difficult to leave situations because of uh, COVID. Of course, um, joblessness um, has led to a lot of folks being very precariously housed behind their rent. Um, there is an eviction moratorium in place right now, but everyone's kind of holding their breath for that eviction yeah. cliff um, at once um, landlords. Mm -hmm. and, and the moratorium, quite frankly, hasn't stopped landlords from filing evictions in court. And so that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's a huge problem too. Those housing or those eviction records on people's uh, housing records is a huge block to gaining housing in the future. So, 
you know, a lot of our resources are geared towards these subsidy programs that provide lots of services like Molly was talking about. Um, but we don't concentrate enough on just the affordable housing stock and how to maintain affordable housing, market rate housing for folks who, um, you know, earn wages and just can't afford um, a, a place to live. And that's, that's a huge gap too. So I think that's where we'll see it. We'll see a lot more people accessing the system um, once that eviction moratorium is lifted unless we um, get some relief to people really fast. Um, Dr. Brown, I'd like to ask you about your research in Uptown on SROs that closed and what that has, what, obviously it's about a story about gentrification, but can you describe a little bit about what that has been for, um, for the people who were potentially SRO residents. Yeah, thank, thanks for asking about that. Um, yeah, this is a study we have in progress. We're still collecting data. Um, but for those who aren't familiar with single room occupancy or SRO housing, um, the, this is one of the very last forms of what we would call naturally occurring affordable housing, meaning that this is housing that just happens to have very low rent associated with it so that people can access it without having to go through, you know, Section 8 or homeless service you know, they, people who are low wage workers or who have fixed incomes due to disability or retirement income can just simply access this form of housing. Um, the rent is low because um, the accommodations are limited. People rent very small rooms and then oftentimes you're sharing a kitchen and bathroom with other um, tenants. I, I see Paula nodding her head, so she's probably familiar. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was getting ready to ask her. I was getting ready to ask her what about, she's saying the SRO, the single room occupancy, what about, that's fine, that's for the single people, but what about women and children? What about a woman with children? Where do we fit in? That's basically, right. that's fine. I'm, right. I'm, I like that. But what about a whole female with children? We can't go live in that. It, that's exactly right. And th that's, that's a limitation to the to the availability of naturally occurring affordable housing for people who have limited income. You can't get a two-bedroom, three-bedroom apartment. Um, but, but yeah, one of the issues we're having in, in Uptown in particular and other areas of Chicago is that um, due to gentrification, these SRO buildings that house hundreds and hundreds of Chicago residents are being purchased by developers and converted to luxury apartment buildings. And as a result of that, individuals are getting displaced from their homes and have very few options for where to go. So uh, for our research project, we are interviewing people who have been displaced from their SROs to learn more about their stories of displacement, what support they felt they had in that displacement process, and um, kind of the extent to which they were able to secure a housing that is in fact affordable in a stable way for them. Um, so we're collaborating with an organization in Uptown called One North Side, and they've been doing years of affordable housing advocacy, and particularly around this SRO issue. So we're hoping to use the data from this project to advocate with them to the Department of Housing to make sure that displaced individuals get a robust, um, a robust relocation plan once they're displaced. So just to put in a plug for those who are interested in grassroots organizing, One North Side mm. is a great organization to look into. Yeah. I think what you're saying is the housing that we put people in who are precariously housed or on the verge is private sector housing. And the housing that is um, 
for people who are on the street is probably government or nonprofit housing. So there's simply, with the private sector being priced so high, there is no housing for people who are all of a sudden needing it on the edge. Hmm. I'm just gonna jump in here because we are just about out of time for our sort of uh, scheduled talk. And I, I wanna say, first of all, thank you to uh, not only all of our panelists and speakers, but everybody who took the time, if you're watching on Facebook Live, that's amazing. We wanted to leave a few minutes for um, some questions, if anybody has them. Dr. Brown, um, well, frankly, this is a question for anybody, but um, does, does the city uh, have a responsibility to provide enough uh, affordable housing for everybody? And if we're not counting the number of people who are doubled up or we don't have good data on that, how do we meet the need? Well, you know, you say, do the city have a responsibility? I thought that's what HUD was for, to keep on um, creating low-income housing for those that need it. And apparently, it seems like they're selling out to the, the private um, sector or developers. So I think, yeah, they, they, they do have that responsibility. Yet in the same token, we have a responsibility too. As I tell them over in West Inglewood, you know, it's a lot of vacant houses over there, a lot of vacant buildings over there. Now, we can't rely on the city to do everything, so some things we have to do for ourselves. You know, like I said, that five-bedroom house I looked at, I couldn't sleep in all five rooms. So who can I help that want to help themselves? So, you know, we, we have our own responsibility as well as the city do. Hmm. Well, um, with that, uh, Lee and Paula, um, when I talk to Angelica, the one thing that's really interesting, I mentioned she was homeless for about 20 years and she pointed out just the incredible speed. We talked about how sudden the changes can come. And in her case, the majority of the story really takes place over the course of about a year and a half. And then it's almost like it took her 18 years to recover from everything that had just happened. And she described that feeling as being chased by a cat, like being chased by a predator that's like right behind you. You don't know where it's going to pop out next, you know? And exactly. I was curious, does it, well, so it exactly. sounds like that does resonate with you. Like, how do you think about it? I'm still going through, uh, I'm, I was, before I got into Streetwise real good, before I got into um, my brother Lee and another vendor, I was going through a thing with the guy. I was telling you all, hit me in the head with the can. And, and you know, I understand that's what he felt. I do. I really do. And that's why I want to reach out here and help the young people with children, young ladies with children. But I mean, I understand it totally. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> a perfect cat just woo so yeah I, I i agree with her so it took me a years to get out of a relationship that was hell so i understand i totally understand what a way to end it <laughs> <laughs> lee did you have anything you wanted to add yeah, well, you know what? My thing is, yeah, um, that predator we call homeless can pop out anywhere at any time. But my thing is, how do I prevent it from happening to me again? When I look at TV, a lot of stars say that they was homeless, and it's like, man, how do I keep it from happening to me once again?
And the only thing I can say about that is, um, honestly, as my mom used to say, if you want to um, help somebody, if you want to help yourself, go find somebody to help. Thank you to every single person uh, who joined today. Thank you so much to everybody on this panel. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'll kind of leave with one last thought. Uh, Angelica talked a lot about um, wanting to, she wanted to like get a t-shirt that said, this is what homelessness looks like and walk around with it every day so that she could feel a little bit less invisible. So like, if we can get a hashtag going or something. Um, yeah. The idea that like there are people who have faced this and so making it a little bit more visible I think uh, is the first step. We want to bring you more of this show and if you want more too, let us know. You can leave a review on iTunes or you can leave us a comment on Streetwise's social media. A huge thank you to all of the panelists and my co-moderator, Suzanne Haney. Also to Streetwise's Julie Youngquist and Dave Hamilton, who were absolutely instrumental in helping us pull off the live event. Thanks also to Cindy Pulaskis, Terry Lydon, Mike Halfman, Janine Harston, Sheila Solomon, Charlie Meyerson, and everybody who submitted questions or joined us for the event. You guys made it feel amazing. If this is the first episode of this show that you're listening to, oh boy, do we have a surprise for you. I can't urge you enough to go back to the beginning and experience Angelica's story for yourself. If you want to watch the full unedited panel, you can find it on Streetwise's Facebook page. And while you're there, throw us a like or let us know what you think of the show. To find out more about any of the panelists or to find the resources that were referenced in this discussion, you can check out the show notes of this episode. If you live outside of Chicago, but you're interested in Streetwise magazine, visit streetwise.org to find out how you can get a digital edition of the magazine donate, or even volunteer. I'm Jesse Batend. Thank you for listening.